Exodus, we're going to begin in chapter 21, actually, verse 28 tonight, and then come into chapter 22. Exodus 21, beginning at verse 28. Again, Israel is on a journey that eventually will end in the promised land. And God is transforming a nation of former slaves into a group of dynamic worshipers. Along the way, he has revealed himself in glory and greatness, and he has spoken to his people his word. He has given them commandments. And now in these three chapters we're looking at, last week, this week, and next week, he's giving them many, many principles and precepts by which they are to live in community with one another. In fact, that's one of the things I want to remind us of tonight, is that the reason why God has to go through all of this in detail is because he wants his people to live in community with each other. That has always been the case, and it will always be the case. When we get to heaven, we're going to be living in community with each other. But because of that, down here, God knows that there's going to be issues because we're sinful. There's going to be issues with getting along with each other, how to deal with each other, how to resolve things when they come up. Again, remember, too, there was no judicial system in Israel at this time. No judge or courts that you could appeal to, in a sense. There was no police force. They, they were a self-governing nation, if you will. They had no king at this point. They had Moses. But God had to set down for all of them in the nation how they were to get along with each other. And how they were to express his heart to each other. It's a heart of care, consideration, respect, trust, all kinds of things that we're going to see throughout these chapters as we move through them. And so that's why God took the time to literally lay out all these different scenarios and circumstances that could come up so that they had an idea of how they should handle it and how they could handle it well and, and honorably and, and be able to keep peace in the community of believers because God always desires unity amongst his people. So notice, beginning in verse 28, God holds res people responsible for their possessions and their property. And he holds them responsible for any kind of damage that may come from them or their possessions or property to others. He says, look, if one of your oxes gores a man or a woman so that they die, the ox must be stoned, flesh must not be eaten, and the owner of the ox will be acquitted. But if the ox had the habit of goring 
And its owner was warned, knew about it ahead of time, and did not take the necessary precautions, and then it killed somebody. The ox must be stoned, and the man who owned the ox must be put to death. God is saying, I'm holding you responsible for your negligence. For your willful negligence, you knew that you had a dangerous animal. You knew that it could harm someone else, and you didn't do anything to prevent it from harming others. God holds us responsible, not for what we don't know, but for what we do know. And in this case, he's saying, you have an ox, you're responsible for that. And even how it affects somebody else. And remember, too, we're talking about an agrarian society where wealth of people and, and what they had wasn't measured in the ways we measure it today. It would be measured in land and, and cattle and oxen and all of those things. That, that's how they had their wealth. They had it built in to their land, to their property, to their possessions, to their animals. And God is saying, I'm holding you responsible for everything that you own and how it affects somebody else, especially, again, the whole negligence part. Now, there may, verse 30, come a point where the dead person's relatives may accept pay, some kind of monetary price in compensation for the loss of life of their relative rather than the person who owned the animal being put to death. That was up to the family, okay? Notice something else, and this is quite striking considering at the time of history we're talking about. We're talking about thousands of years ago that in verse 31, if an ox gores a son or a daughter, and the reason I point that out is, again, that might not mean as much to us today. But the equality of men and women under Hebrew law is quite striking and different from any other nation that was around them. Okay? God is saying, you treat males and females alike. That was unheard of thousands of years ago. Again, the law communicates the principle of responsibility. Look at verse 33. If a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it, doesn't think about, well, if I don't cover this, what could happen? And an, an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must fully repay the loss. Again, God is holding his people responsible for what they have and making sure that they are keeping track of what they have and that they're thinking about the fact that everything that they do doesn't just affect them, it affects others. It's all about, again, shaping their hearts into making sure 
that they care about others, not just themselves, that they're thinking about others, not just themselves, that every act, every word that they consider, how is this not just affecting me, but how is this affecting the community and those around me? I can't just think of myself. I've got to always be looking out and thinking of others because I'm part of. I'm not all alone in this. I'm just part of a body. And we as a body have to learn to align ourselves in order to maximize our effectiveness, just like our own human body. We can't have our hand and arm going out there doing something that the rest of the body is not. Our body has to learn to do things in alignment with each other. The body of Christ, that's why he compares us in the New Testament to being part of a body. We have to be unified and align ourselves to go in the same direction and be doing the same thing complementing one another, not competing with each other, and always thinking about how is what I'm saying and what I'm doing not just affecting me, but how is it affecting everyone around me? Notice he talks here about restitution for negligence and carelessness. Back to verse 36, the end of verse chapter 21. If it is known that the ox had a habit of goring, and again, its owner did not take the necessary precautions to prevent it from harming someone. He must pay ox for ox, and the dead animal will become his. God is trying to teach his people not only positively about what they should do, but he's giving a lot of deterrence in the consequences of their behavior to hopefully drill into them. It costs me something when I don't look out for others. I have to pay restitution. I have to pay for my negligence. I have to have consequences for what I do that negatively affects another person's animal, another person's property, uh, another person's life. I mean, think about this in relationship to the world we live in today. How cruel and unkind and lack of consideration, and I'll just talk about the highways. I mean, we live in a world where everyone is so caught up in their own self and so self-absorbed and self-focused, they don't even give thought to what's going on around them and how everything that they do affects somebody else, and sometimes in a very negative way. Amen. Notice God continues this in chapter 22 when he talks about the protection of property and how restitution is required. If someone steals from someone else, he must pay back, make amends, restore five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the one sheep. So it's going to hurt. It's not just restoring one to one. It's like, no, you're going to have to give up more. Verse 2. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guilt. In other words, you want to take the chance on going into somebody else's house and steal something and they kill you? Too bad, God said. 
Again, God is saying there has to be laws, there has to be principles and precepts that my people live by in order to, again, shape their behavior to reflect mine. I'm a God who cares. I'm a God who protects. I'm a God who's considerate of others. Everything I do is in consideration of others. And, and that's my heart. And I'm a responsible God. And I want my people to be responsible for what I entrust to them. And if for some reason they're negligent or whatever, they have to know that's not okay. That's not okay. In verse 4, they must pay back double. In verse 5, they must give of the best of their own field and the best of their vineyard. In other words, the restitution that's given must be to the victim access to his best, not just, oh, here, whatever I feel like. Again, it's got to hurt a little bit, right? Notice even if someone starts a fire, verse 6, the negligent party is liable for the loss. The one who started the fire must surely make restitution. If a man, verse 7, gives his neighbor money of articles for safekeeping, and now we come to a different part. So let me just pause for a moment. Not only is God trying to say to his people, look, You've got to be responsible for everything you have and, and how it affects everyone who lives and, and everything around you. But they lived in a society where there were no such thing as banks or safety deposit boxes or whatever. So let's say a family was going to leave for a while. Well, they couldn't just leave all their possessions and valuables there in an empty house. They would, they would transfer their animals or anything of value to someone else in the community that they trusted. Now, there's a big thing. That's something, again, you and I need. Who do we trust? I mean, really trust. Who is it that you know right now you would trust with your most valued possessions? And that you know if you entrusted those possessions to, to them you know that they would be very well taken care of and that they would come back to you in the same condition that you gave them to them in. You know anybody like that? Do people look at you that way and me that way? I hope they do. That they feel like they could give us their most valued possessions and we would treat them as if they were our own but again, folks, we look at our world today, that's not happening even amongst those who name the name of Christ. We borrow something or we give something and we allow others to use something of ours and a lot of times it's not cleaned up and it's not put back and it's not done in a way that it should be done reflecting our God. So God here in this section, I think, is also saying, before you ever borrow something from somebody or you lend something to somebody, use care and caution. 
Make sure that the person that you're entrusting yourself with or your values with and your valuables with, that you can truly trust them. I mean, truly trust them. Because notice verse 7, if a man gives his neighbor money of articles for safekeeping, property deposited with a trustee, and it's stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he must repay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house will be brought before the judge to see whether he has had a hand in his brother's neighbor's goods. In other words, to determine if he stole the property or if he was in some way involved in a plot to steal what was deposited to him. In all cases of illegal possessions, a breach of trust, violation of covenant obligation. And that's what it really comes down to. God not only wanted to shape his people to be a people who worshipped him, but realized that the worship of him meant treating others in the right way. That also was reflective of worship of God. That how we treat our fellow men, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, is directly reflective of how we worship God. And so God is saying, I not only want you to use great care and consideration towards one another, I want you to be a people that can be trusted and that your word is gold. And if you say you did something or didn't do it, people will believe you simply because you've never given them any reason to doubt you. But is that the case? Verse 10, care of even animals. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep and it dies or is hurt or is carried away without anyone seeing it, and there will be an oath then to the Lord between the two of them, a binding oath that, look, it was just an accident or it was just an untimely death or maybe it, you know, it was just time for that animal to die. And notice the owner will accept this and he will not have to pay. But if it was stolen from him, he will pay its owner. In other words, the one in whom the animal was entrusted to, if that animal got stolen on their watch, then they're responsible to repay the owner of that animal. Because now they entrusted that animal to a neighbor for safekeeping, and that neighbor did not keep it safe. They allowed it to be stolen. That's on the person that was the trustee. Again, God is saying, these kind of things are important. It's reflective of your worship of me. If it is torn in pieces by a predator, verse 13, he will bring it for evidence and he will not have to pay for what was torn. And I want to point out that word evidence, a witness. Israelites were fully aware of the need for evidence. You couldn't just go around saying anything or accusing anybody of anything. The Israelites were taught by God from the very beginning of their community with each other. There has to be solid evidence one way or the other. If there's no evidence, then sorry. There has to be clear evidence. Rules for borrowing, again, verse 14 and 15, using care and caution. 
Then we come to verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Good Lord. <laughs> Why are these in here? Because these were behaviors of the people of the nations to whom they were now surrounded by. That they would eventually push out by the Lord and would inhabit that, their land. And God is basically saying, I don't want my people to be like the world. And there were several things that were very common in Canaanite culture that God did not want to see become part of Israelite culture. The first was casual sex, verse 16 and 17. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as casual sex, even if it's consensual. There's always going to be accountability and consequences for someone's actions when it comes to that act, you see. And of course, in that day, the reason verse 17 is there is because that was compensation for the loss of the daughter's services if she is taken from the home. Verse 18, about allowing a sorceress to live, tampering with the forbidden spiritual world, which God was very clear not to do, is destructive and defiling. It not only destroys the person who's involved with tampering with the unseen spiritual forbidden world, but it influences and defiles everyone around them. God says you've got to cut it off completely. Dealing with the forbidden spiritual world entices people to follow lies and untruth rather than leading them to the truth of God. We see this all over the place today with the spiritualism of our day and age, with uh, witchcraft and all of these things. It leads people away from the truth. And that's all Satan wants to do, is just corrupt the truth of God. Of course, bestiality, verse 19, is a sick, demented, and gross act, but it was commonly practiced by the Canaanites. Whoever sacrifices to a God other than the Lord must be utterly destroyed. God wanted to maintain from the very beginning purity of worship, that he alone was to be worshipped and nothing or no one else. Amen. Then we come to verse 21. So in, in these sections, you can see again the things that God was trying to instill in his people because it all centered around them living in community and what kind of influence were they being to others in their community. And then we come to verse 21 where we see that God is extremely concerned with the welfare of those who are most vulnerable in the community. Those that may be pushed to the fringe, those that maybe aren't part of the center of the community the forgotten, if you will. He says, you must not wrong a foreigner nor oppress him, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Don't afflict a widow or an orphan because they'll cry to me and I will surely hear their cry and you won't like it if I come against you. Notice verse 25. 
If you lend money to any of my people who are needy among you, do not be like the money lender to him. Do not charge him interest. Show kindness and mercy and do not seek to take advantage of their situation. Help them, but don't try to take advantage of the situation. Oh my, again, do, do I have to say what kind of world we live in today? I mean, everything you can imagine from every insurance company to everything that you deal with, people, and, and even, can I just say, even just go back a couple weeks to our own area. I'm sure you all heard about the fact that every hotel in the area during the Super Bowl week jacked their prices up like even higher because they knew people were coming in and instead of making it more accommodating, it's like, nope, we're going to make more money, you know. That's the mentality of the world. I'm going to take advantage of people and, and I'm going I'm to make more on their bad, you know, fortune. I mean, think about like the disasters that happen, like hurricanes and stuff and, and how people are taken advantage of who go through things like that. that. That's our world. And God is saying, I don't want my people to be like that. I want them to be kind. I want them to be merciful. I want them to put themselves in the place of those that are suffering and think of them that way because that's how God is. And he wants us to always be a reflection of him and his heart. Even if you take the garment, verse 26, this is amazing to me, of your neighbor in pledge. In other words, even interest-free loans required some type of pledge in that culture. There had to be something that was exchanged just to say, even interest-free, we're making an agreement between each other. It was a cultural thing. But notice what God says. If you're going to do that, you got to return that garment by the time the sun goes down. And the garment that was being talked about here was basically what we would call a coat. It was the heavy outer garment. And God is basically saying in verse 27, it is their only heavy covering. It is their garment for their body. What else can they sleep in? And oh, by the way, why did God say return it by the time the sun goes down? Because God understands it gets cold when the sun goes down. They need that to keep warm. So if you're going to take that from them as a pledge, you make sure you give them back their coat before the sun goes down. Now, now think about that implication. If God cares about somebody being cold, anybody being cold, the least of society suffering being cold because they don't have an outer garment, that's how much God cares. And that's how much God sees. And that's how much God knows. And so we can only imagine how it grieves the heart of God to look down on this world and to see a world where there's cruelty and hatred and abuse and all of these things going on. And he can see it all and has to absorb it all. We only see a speck. And it bothers us. It affects us. And God is saying, how much more does it affect me? And I don't want my people to be like the world. I want them to be different 
because they know me. Boy, that, it's just, uh, to me, God is saying to us in these chapters, I want you today. I want you to be kind to other people. I want you to be considerate to other people. I want you to be merciful. I want you to put yourself in their place all the time when you're dealing with them. I want them to know that you can be trusted, that they can trust your word, that they can be trusted with, with possessions if they have to give something to you for safekeeping. All of these things are important to the heart of God, and it's what he was using to shape the heart of his people. Notice he says at the end of verse 27, if they are cold and you don't give them back their coat and they cry out to me for help, I will hear, for I am a gracious God. Wow. God loves his people dearly, and he is protective of them against any abuse, including abuse at the hands of fellow Israelites, or in our case, fellow Christians. And so notice the context of verse 28. Don't blaspheme God. Now, we may think that blaspheming God is, in a sense, cursing him in some way with words. Oh, no, it means so much more than that. You see, that's why it's in the context it's in. To blaspheme God from God's perspective is not to treat other people properly. Because every human being is created in what? The image of God. And when we don't treat our fellow men in a God-honoring way as God would, we are then blaspheming because the word blaspheme basically means to treat lightly, to not give it much weight. And we're basically saying, God, I don't, I don't care about you or what you want. I'm going to treat this person ugly regardless. In a sense, that's us saying, God, I, what you have to say about how I treat other people doesn't mean much to me. I, it doesn't carry much weight. He even goes on to say, oh, and don't curse the ruler of your people as well. Oh, ooh. I don't care what political party you're in. <laughs> that, yeah, I'll just leave that hang. <laughs> Verse 29, the Israelites are reminded that their best belongs to God. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing, David said. Do not hold back your offerings. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. You must do the same with your animals. Seven days they may remain with their mothers, but then give them to me on the eighth day. Are we giving God our leftovers or are we giving him first fruits? The very best of ourselves and what we have. Because God ends this chapter by saying, my people are to be a holy people to me, distinct, but also it means to be dedicated, consecrated, devoted 
Because here's the deal. One of the byproducts of God leading the people through the lands that he is leading them where they are surrounded by all of these pagans is so that they also can be a witness to these very, very, very lost people. And so these very lost people in all of these nations, all the ites, as I said, Hivites, Jebusites, Canaanites, you know, that they can see the difference that God and knowing God and having a relationship with God makes and that they're his people may live in such a way that they can be salty, if you will. Just like Jesus even said to us as New Testament Christians, you're to be the salt of the earth. And one of the things about salt is that it creates thirst. And it flavors things in a good way. And God is saying to his people, I want you to be salt in the midst of this world so that by the way you live, when these pagans see it, there will be something attractive about the way you live that will draw them ultimately to me. I want to use my people to draw others to me. That's always been God's heart. Again, because what we said last week, God cares about everyone and anyone. God values all people. And so as we move through these chapters, I think it's just a, you know, at first, I got to be honest. I even shared this with Nicole several weeks ago. I said, this, these chapters are not my favorite. I mean, you're dealing with a bunch of minutiae. You're dealing with all of these different laws and principles and stuff. And it's like... But then the more I immersed myself in it, I saw how God even was changing my heart <laughs> and saying, Jeff, if you look at these a little bit closer, there's something you're missing here. You're concentrating on each of the laws themselves instead of what I'm trying to develop in my people through all of these. And what I'm trying to develop through all of these principles and precepts is that they develop not only a heart for me, but that they develop a heart for each other. Because it's always been God's will that we live together in community. And we've got to learn how to get along with each other and knowing that things are going to come up because we're sinful. So then God even shows his people, here's how you resolve it so you can be back together again and be at peace. Amen. Because I cannot have my people Amen. being unaligned. Amen. I cannot have my people being disunified with one another. I've got to have them come to some kind of, of agreement and to be able to move on. And again, that doesn't mean that we're equally close to everybody in the body. We can't be. That's impossible. But what it does mean is that as a whole, 
Our goal is we've got to create an environment where we bend over backwards to get along with each other. We go the extra mile. Someone asks us for something, we, you know, go further, as Jesus said. But also knowing that when things come up between us, and they will, it's impossible that they won't, we learn from God how to work through them and move on. God always wants us to reflect him. And we must never forget that because he's one God, but he beautifully exists in three distinct persons. And as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they move and work as one. They're never like, Jesus isn't over there going, Spirit, what are you doing? No. They work in harmony. And God then says, I want my people to be a reflection of the relationship that we have as the Trinity. I want my people to learn through us how to come together and work together so that we're working together as one and we're moving as one. So let's all check our hearts tonight. And let's ask the Lord as we go to sleep tonight that when we wake up, we wake up with a heart of kindness, a heart of love, a heart of consideration, a heart of mercy, a heart of understanding towards other people. And be kind, be loving be caring, especially towards those that are most vulnerable in our society. Let's pray. God, there's so much about you, God, that's amazing. In your personality, God, even though we are marred by sin, we, we see that image of you in us when we are considerate and kind and all of that because we know, Lord, that doesn't come from us. That, that comes from you. That's a reflection, God, of who you are and the imprint you've made on all of us. And especially, Lord, then as Christians who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, God, it, it behooves us even more to be more like you, to be reflective of you, to be who you would be to others, to say the things to others that you would say or not say, to do to others, Lord, what you would do and refrain from doing things to others that you would never do, that you'd never be caught dead doing. God, that's really the goal for all of us, isn't it? It's just to be more like Jesus. And so I pray, God, that everyone in our lives could see Jesus in us, that we talk like Jesus, we walk like Jesus, we behave like Jesus, 
We smile like Jesus. We're kind like Jesus. Lord, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.